Hey, welcome to Small Findings. This is a podcast where I share with you things that I found out. Sometimes they're big deals. Sometimes they're small deals. Small findings, you might say. And the findings we have this week are how to defeat kryptonite by clocks, how to defeat laser printer DRM, and how well or not well Sherlock Holmes stories work for six-year-olds. I guess if we really want to cram it into the theme, we could uh, frame that as how to defeat the inappropriate aspects of Sherlock Holmes. Well, anyway, on to the findings. Yesterday, I was waiting for school to get out so I could pick up my son, and I got into a conversation with another parent, which, for whatever reasons, I I generally try to avoid, but there was a, a broken bike lock sitting on the ground near the bike rack and uh, this parent was shocked because it was a kryptonite lock and that somebody got their bike stolen. I I was not shocked because people steal bikes all the time and lots of people have kryptonite locks. Therefore, I imagine people must be popping these kryptonite locks. The way I thought they probably did it was by using bolt cutters because about a month ago we had an electrician come by to fix some electrical problems and something he ran into was he needed to check something in a locked box it was locked by the electrical company and the electrician said well they probably just forgot about this do you mind if i just pop open this lock and i said sure and he got out uh, what I feel were a small pair of bolt cutters. You could, you could hold the handles with one hand, but yeah, he used two hands, and he went up to the padlock, and you know he might have put some force into it, but he didn't break a sweat. He just popped that padlock. So the mechanical force applied by bolt cutters are pretty considerable. So I imagined if you had a large enough bolt cutter you'd be able to just snap a kryptonite lock, which in some ways is sort of like a large padlock. If you've uh, never seen them, they're these U-shaped locks. So when I got home, I looked this up, and it's actually possible but pretty hard. There's a video of somebody uh, cutting a kryptonite lock from about four years ago, And he takes about two minutes to do it, and he uses his legs, and he uses a big bolt cutter. I imagine this is pretty uncomfortable for somebody to do under pressure, as a bike thief would be under real conditions. Probably want to get it done as fast as you can, and you don't want to grunt. So I did a little bit more looking around, and it seems like the hot new technique for breaking these locks is using a car jack. If you've seen a car jack, you know that there there are these devices that start out flat and you slip them under your car and then you turn the crank 
and the car jack gets taller and taller and eventually connects to the bottom of your car. And then as you keep on turning it, it expands and lifts up your car. So if you fit a car jack, either by modifying the car jack or by getting a small enough car jack into the U of a kryptonite style lock and then start cranking it, it'll apply the kind of force that it uses to lift up a car to that lock. And eventually the weak part of the lock will snap and it'll open up. I'll, I'll link a video of a, of a woman doing this um, a few years ago. So no doubt the kryptonite and other lock companies, as they see these things, they, they try to address them. It's the, the usual security chase that you see in uh, computer security. Although I guess it happened in, in the lock uh, space before it happened in the computer space. So newer kryptonite locks are probably even better, but that doesn't mean that people aren't using older locks to lock up their bikes. And uh, back to this conversation I had, this, uh, this other parent was saying, oh, well, that's, uh, she was shocked because like these kryptonite locks are guaranteed. They are sort of, it turns out, there's something called an anti-theft protection offer. And it's not a simple, all kryptonite locks are guaranteed. There's a matrix on their webpage that says, all right, we have security ratings for all of our, of our locks. They, they seem to range from one to 10. Although realistically, I think the lowest, the least secure lock they sell is probably, probably has a five. If you have a lock with a security rating that I think is around seven or higher, then you do get the free anti-theft protection offer from them. As long as you explicitly go and register, it's not something that's just granted to you. If you have a lower security rating, you have to pay money. I think, I think it ranges between five and 10, or $15. And you, you're sort of buying insurance for your bike via kryptonite. So as in computer security, things aren't that black and white. I personally like to think that because physical locks seem a lot simpler than computer stuff that it would be, but it's not uh, just like anything else. So... If you have a bike, you should probably get a lock, but you should also expect that under certain conditions, you could lose your bike. I'm outside for this segment only because it's going to be extremely hot today and it is still early enough that I could be outside without uh, being all scorched up. So I thought I'd record this out here and I hope the ambient noise isn't too much. I'm gonna talk about a very indoor topic though. It's printers. So I, I hate printers. And some years ago, I decided we just weren't gonna have printers anymore. I don't know, seven years ago, 
something like that. So what I did instead was anytime anything needed to be printed, I would go to work, I'd print it there, I'd bring it back home. This, this uh, way of operating broke down at the start of the pandemic, though. And I would just kind of skip printing things if I could. But uh, Anderson is very into printing. At the back of a lot of his books, there would be a website uh, listing. There'd be a URL, and it would say something like, go to investigatorsbooks.com or davepilkey.com or something like that. And he's, uh, he's very excited. He's still excited about uh, visiting those. For a while, he would call them comms. He would say, can we go to this com? Uh, but like all amusing malapropisms, it just like went away within a month. But anyway, on these comms, there would inevitably be things to print out so that you could color or do some sort of activity. And we needed activities in the beginning of the pandemic uh, because we couldn't go to in-person school. So uh, we decided to get a laser printer because if you're going to get a printer, laser printers are cheaper per page overall. Like inkjet printers are, are a famous racket. At one point, I don't know if it's still at this point, but um, inkjet ink costs something like $8,000 a gallon. Uh, but that doesn't mean laser printers aren't a racket. Just within the last month or so, our our laser printer has started to run low on toner, and there's there are some visible effects in what's what's been printed. So, what I suspect they do is when you buy a new printer, they load them up with low capacity cartridges so that you have to buy a refill sooner. And later, and by by refill I mean entirely new cartridges. Laser printer cartridges, it turns out, are incredibly expensive. There's four of them: one for each color that's used to um, print everything. Everything is a combination of cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Uh, so there's four toner cartridges. They each cost between like 90 and and $100. But that's if you buy the official Hewlett-Packard cartridges. If you buy a third-party cartridge, they're about a quarter of the price. But the issue with that is you have to do some work to defeat this uh, terrible printer DRM. So modern laser printer cartridges, or at least the ones from HP, have chips on them. And the printer will only use cartridges that have those chips that say, hey, this is, this is a real, totes real official HP cartridge. So if you buy a toner cartridge that doesn't have one of those, what you have to do is clip it out of the official HP toner cartridge 
and put it in the new toner cartridge that you bought. Before I bought it, I thought, well, this, this could be screwed up. I watched a video uh, that explained how to do it, and it seemed pretty straightforward. So I took a gamble. I could, uh, worst case, I buy these, and then I buy the official ones because I couldn't use these. In that case, what I've paid is basically 125% of the official price. But if it does work out, then I pay 25% of the official price. So I went ahead and got it. And today, I installed a cartridge. The It turns out to be... Uh, I'll, I'll verify that it's not that bad at all. The cutting part isn't that sensitive. Mostly what you're doing is cutting a piece of plastic that holds in the chip. You're not doing any cutting on the actual chip itself. And you're doing that so that you could remove the chip from the existing official cartridge. And then once you do that, you take some tweezers, and you do have to be kind of careful about it, but you just seat it into the holding spot on your new unofficial cartridge. And then you're good. You stick it in your printer, and your printer will report, oh, you're very low on toner, or some nonsense like that. Um, which, for now, you could ignore. I do dread the day that there's some stupid firmware update, and they decide, oh, we're, we're just not going to print because uh, this chip tells us there's we're low on toner. So go buy some official HP toner with uh, a new chip. But that hasn't happened yet, so we're fine. I put it in, I printed out the test page, and it was fine. One thing I should have done before I did all of this was actually print out the the report page for the printer, which tells you uh, how much ink you, or not ink, how much toner you have for each cartridge. Um, and the way it tells you is what it'll, it'll print out something from, from the chip, which is bullshit, but it will print out a square of that toner color. So it'll print out a magenta square, a cyan square, a yellow square, and a black square. And that's how you could really tell how much you have. And if I had done this, I'd have realized that the only toner that was low, that was actually low, was the cyan one. So I could have paid 25% of 25% of the official price, in a sense, and only gotten a new cyan toner. So I, I advise you to do that before you get any new toner. Anyway, that that is my finding about the disappointing existence. Oh, there's a, a police car out there. Probably doesn't probably doesn't want me to tell you that you could get around the DRM in uh in printers. I had a lot of questions about the suitability of Sherlock Holmes for a six year old kid. Um, and I think, obviously, everything always depends on the actual kid. And I, I think a lot of them do kind of work for kids. 
the first thing I wondered was, are our kids, or is, is my kid, actually going to be interested in these stories? Are they just too dry? In our case, the answer is yes. Yeah, Anderson is interested in these stories simply because they are mysteries. All of these stories establish very early on that there is some kind of mystery to be solved and that Sherlock Holmes will solve it. So even if even if uh, Anderson doesn't get the particulars of the story or uh, exactly how things are solved, he is interested in knowing in what the solution for the mystery is. The other question I had is, is the language and are the concepts too far above the head of a six-year-old? And the answer is sometimes, but... The weird thing about the compellingness of the mystery aspect is um, he'll just keep on listening uh, <laughs> to see what the solution to the mystery is. Uh, even if there's there's a bunch of stuff he doesn't understand about handsome cabs and what is a baron and who is the lord of this or that, which, honestly, I, I don't understand that well either. There are things, however that a kid will retain that that's sort of surprising to me. Uh, for example, in the story called The Adventure of the Six Napoleons, there's a part at which uh, Holmes is referencing a photo he had of some mystery person. And I, I completely forgot where he got that photo because uh, we read about... 15, 20 minutes at a time, and it had been two nights ago when um, Sherlock Holmes had gotten that photo. And I was like, I don't really know where this is from. Anderson was like, oh, he found it in the pocket of the dead guy. He also remembers weird things like there's kind of a throwaway character who is so throwaway that I forgot his name, but he works at uh, Scotland Yard. He's not Lestrade. He's another detective. And he he uh, brings cases to Sherlock Holmes. So we're reading um, the latest one we're on is the adventure of something. Some rich lord got murdered, and uh, this guy says, "Hey, I have an interesting case for you." And you know, Anderson was like, "Oh, okay, that guy was from this other story." <laughs> I flip back, and he was there. So some things are more important to to kids than they are to adults. Whereas uh, an adult might file that guy away as, well, that's a stand-in for um, this functional character role. Uh, people, you know, kids might think, oh, well, that, that is a person, that is somebody, and I'll, I'll remember that. As for the level of violence, we've, uh, for better or worse... We've already been introduced to violence via the Lord of the Rings, which uh, has the occasional sorting, and an old Chinese novel from a thousand years ago called All Men Are Brothers, which we've read about half of together. It's it's pretty violent, and, and like suddenly violent, so I'll, I'll be reading, and then all of a sudden I'll have to be like, um, and then 
and then just kind of like flip scan ahead paragraphs and just move on to the, the part that <laughs> gets past the various impalements and dismemberments and things like that in that story. The murders in Sherlock Holmes aren't too grisly. Oh, hey, it's Dr. Wiley. The murders are not too grisly, and they're often done by the time Sherlock Holmes gets there. There, there is there is one story that ends with them observing a murder, um, but it is it is kind of easy to elide any any details that are extra scary for at least for this particular kid. Things like suicide, I don't quite know how to explain. So I tend to glaze over that. I've been playing it kind of risky by not pre-reading these short stories. There's there's one I skipped outright uh, using the title. It's called The Adventure of Black Peter. And on the spot, I thought maybe it was about that horrible Dutch holiday uh, in which uh, white people... Uh, put on blackface to pretend to be African, but uh, I I look back at it. It's it's just about um, some sort of naval type whose nickname was Black Peter, partly because of his swarthy features and black beard, um, but but nothing nothing quite as racist. There is a bunch of racist stuff, however, in Sherlock Holmes that fortunately I've been able to. Uh, skip over because they're not integral to the story. Sherlock Holmes never says, well, obviously it was this this Moorish person here or or whatever they would have said back then. Um, But but there is, of course, um, casual racism in something written in around like the 1920s in England when um, white people were the center of the world to them. And there's, there's definitely, so I I couldn't tell if Arthur Conan Doyle was saying phrenology was a legitimate thing or the character, uh, in the book was saying it, but there, there is something about the features of different races, faces, and skulls in the Hound of the Bastervilles, but I was easily able to skip over that. I also think that at some point, Sherlock Holmes says something like, oh, but it is inevitable that this man would eventually fall prey to the wrath of a woman with Spanish blood or something like that, so I was able to skip over that. There's the Adventure of the Three Students, in which one of the students is is an Indian person, and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, describes him as, of course, inscrutable. To Doyle's credit, spoiler, the the Indian student is not the one who did it. And there is, as you'd expect, a, a general sexism. In these books, kind of like uh, All Men Are Brothers, that uh, Chinese novel from a thousand years ago, it's on one hand, it's not great that when they exclude women from their stories, but it's sort of better 
when they do. Because when they do include women, they're always terrible. All Men Are Brothers, that Chinese novel from a thousand years ago, has around 200 pages that we had to skip that are mostly about this terrible uh, whore, I guess, who tricked Sung Ji and did all this stuff to ruin his life because she's a terrible woman, and, and thus he had to join the bandits. There's one Sherlock Holmes story in which there's a forced marriage. Someone kidnapped a woman and then got a corrupt priest out there and at gunpoint forced the woman to say, I do. And then everybody was like, ha ha ha, now you're married. And and then Sherlock Holmes and Watson busted in. But yeah, Anderson had questions about that. Like, why why is that allowed? And I I don't really know why why that's valid. I just assume that it's probably illegal to force a marriage, even in England in the 1890s. But maybe, maybe people looked the other way and just rolled with it. Either way, that was a messed up thing that I wish I hadn't read, and I, I wish I had skipped ahead. But for the most part, they... They are fairly engaging stories, even if there's a bunch of things that aren't easy to understand. They're a little bit unfair, although Arthur Conan Doyle never signed a contract that said the reader should also be able to solve the crime along with Sherlock Holmes. There's, I think, two that I was able to do that with, and I'm no great detective, even if, even if things were really fair. But there's quite a few Sherlock Holmes stories in which he notices something or has access to some information that the reader doesn't have access to. And you're, you're, still, you're still supposed to believe that he is brilliant. But I tend to think like, well, if I also was able to go off page and look up the school records, then maybe I, I could have solved this. But, but that doesn't bother the kid. So I think you can read these stories with your kid. You should be a little bit more careful than me and skim them ahead of time. And of course, this all depends on the particular kid. And that is it for this episode's findings. If you have any comments you want to make or any findings that you would like to share, email me at smallfindings at fastmail, F-A-S-T-M-A-I-L dot com. Thanks for listening.